you. Well, let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 12 this morning. We're hoping that we uh, get through this message without uh, severe coughing fits. I was thinking about that, you know, it's those of you that have been here for a number of years of you know, if you if you speak enough or get up in front of people enough, there will be things that will happen that you would rather that didn't happen, you know. And I'm thinking back a few years ago when I'm standing here and I'm preaching and all of a sudden my nose just starts bleeding. And it's not like you can control that kind of thing, I guess, when uh so but uh appreciated your patience last week as we fought through that. Hopefully the message still made some sense. So, well, let's, uh, let's look. We're going to look at the body of Christ today as, uh, as we continue this series of messages. I'm going to read the first eight verses of Romans chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, we just thank you for your grace. Your grace and your mercy, Lord, that we have gathered together this morning in your name. As we've worshipped you and set our hearts upon you this morning, Lord, I ask now as we turn to your word that your Holy Spirit would minister to us this morning that you would teach the things to us from your word that you would have for us, and that we would submit ourselves to your will. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I've been in the middle of this series now of messages on what I've called foundational principles of the church. Certainly not all inclusive, but um, last week, or three weeks ago, we looked at, uh, first of all, it has to be overriding of all things that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He must be the head of the church. If he is not the head of the church, then I would ask, why are we gathering if we're not gathering in Christ's name? And he is the one who is to direct our affairs. Christ is the head, just like the Father is the head of the Son. The Christ is to direct the order and purpose and direction that the church is to go. And we must submit ourselves to that. Secondly, we looked at the aspect that we are to be a church that's founded on the word of God. We must be founded on the word of God and as I said, we must be directed by the word of God and we must be constrained by the word of God in that we must not go outside. That's a tremendous temptation is for man to go outside of the word of God, even for good intentions. But we must constrain ourselves to what the word of God has directed us as a church, how we should function 
Thirdly, last week we looked at uh, governance or administration of the church and God's plan of administration through the use of elders and deacons and what the qualifications and the functions of the elders and the deacons are within the church. And now this morning I would like to focus on the aspect of the body of Christ, which is all of us. We're all part of the body of Christ. And so I want to look at this passage. There are several passages in Scripture where Paul deals with the body of Christ, but I'd like to focus this morning on this passage in Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. Paul reminds us, he starts out this section, this passage, he says, in light of or in view of God's mercies. God wants, or Paul wants to set things in context. He says, I'm going to tell you something that's very important, but first of all, I want to set the context that you need to consider in light of or in view of God's mercy. Of course, he's writing to believers, he's writing to Christians, and he wants you to have the mindset that you need to be thinking of these things in light of God's mercy towards you. You know, it certainly helps us when we put things in proper context, doesn't it? When we put things in proper order, when we put things in the way in which we should think, first of all, that God was merciful to us, of course, through saving us. We looked last night at the passage in Acts regarding the salvation of the Philippian jailer and his family. And to put things, I'm sure, you know, I think it's often good for us to go back and remind ourselves, what was it that brought us to that point of salvation? And to think upon that moment and to remember that, um, it's good for us to remind ourselves of our proper place before Christ. Paul says that in light of this, in light of God's blessings of salvation, we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. You know, sacrificial sacrifices within that culture were not uncommon. Both the Jews practiced sacrifice, sacrificing, seeking men at that time, sacrificed animals particularly, seeking God's mercy. Paul says God's already demonstrated his mercy to you. But the Jews practiced sacrifice, but the pagans did too. The pagans brought animals and means of sacrifice before God, trying to get God's mercy. People still, to this day, sacrifice thinking somehow that they themselves will obtain God's mercy through their own personal sacrifice. God said, Paul says, God's already been merciful to you, and it's consideration of that mercy that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifice. Now that's had to be a strange statement for Paul to make because whoever thought of a sacrifice is living. But these sacrifices were to come before Christ is alive, passed in a sense, we've spent the last week here, from death to life. We're alive because we're in Christ. And we present ourselves as living sacrifices. We leave the sacrifice still alive. Whereas in that culture, they always thought of sacrifices as never living we sacrifice because of mercy, and we are to present ourselves as holy and pleasing to God or unblemished. Think of the Old Testament sacrificial system. What kind of lamb were you to bring before God? You were to bring before God a lamb that was unblemished, that was perfect, without fault. The best of the best. <coughs> not, not the worst of your flock, but the best. And Paul's saying we are to bring our best before God. In light of what God has done for you, we're to bring our best to God holy and pleasing to God. Paul goes on and says that this is our spiritual worship. Think of the reasoning. This is intelligent. If you understand what God has done for you, wouldn't you want, if you reason this through, if you understand the salvation that Christ has provided for you, what 
would you want to bring to him but only your best? This is your spiritual worship. Then he goes on and he, admit, he instructs, I will say, by saying that he says, do not conform then, in light of this, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. We are not to be molded by this world. Of course, all of us, as we, before we come to Christ, <coughs> we are molded in the pattern of the world. But Paul says that in light of your salvation, do not mold yourself to this pattern of the world anymore. We're not to think. Our actions are not to be like the world's. Our actions are to be like God wants our actions. You know, God's ways are not our ways. Man's ways are different than God's ways. And then he says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. About that, you know, there's well-known movies, I guess, today. I've never seen them called the Transformers, these creatures that can change from one thing to another thing. But, but you know, when we become followers of Jesus Christ, we are really t- to put off the old and to become new, Scripture tells us. We are to be transformed. And I don't think that that's something that is completed on day one. It's a process. Many people think that, well, the moment I give, put my faith in Christ, then I'm... I'm to be completely mature in Christ. And it's not true. That there is, of course, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We've become a new creature, and we've set out on a path of following Christ. But there's a process of transforming ourselves. How do we do that? Many people wonder, how do we transform ourselves in that way? Well, it's through God's Word. It's through the studying of God's Word. And it's through the Holy Spirit teaching us through God's Word. It's through the fellowship with God in prayer and meditation upon God. And I think that that is a process of maturing that we will transform our minds to not think the old way, but to think God's ways. We want to say, not my thoughts, God, your thoughts is what what I want to have. And the amazing thing that Paul says here, many people wonder, how can I know the will of God? The answer is right in these two verses. Many people struggle with that. I remember as a young person, how can I know the will of God? What is God's will for my life? Well, Paul tells us that if we don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world, which of course is sin, (coughs) we avoid the pattern of this world, and we begin to renew our minds through God's word, through the teaching of the Holy Spirit, he says, then you can know, you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, (coughs) his good and pleasing and perfect will. (coughs) We're going to try to get through this today without, I'll just have to slow down a minute. Um. But then we can know God's will. If someone were to come to me and say, I, need to, I want to know, I don't know what God's will is in this situation, I would start asking questions. Are you in God's word? Are you meditating and praying? Are you thinking upon God's things? Because God will show you his will. Are you in sin? Are you in sin that needs to be dealt with? Because, you know, it's hard to think upon things of God when you're in sin. And so, if someone were to come to me and say, well, I want you to tell me what God's will is, I would say, I'm not God. <laughs> but there is a way to obtain an understanding of God's will. And Paul has laid it out so simply in these verses. He continues on, then he says in verse 3, For the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than <coughs> you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment and according with the measure of faith God has given you. <coughs> this is interesting that Paul makes a point of saying, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. 
That is not a, how should I say this? Uh, that is certainly a problem for mankind. I was watching a promo for uh, a documentary the other day on the United States school systems. You know, the United States school systems, if you go back 50, 60 years ago, we were number one in the world in science and math scores. We led the world in teaching our children. <clears throat> now our scores are 25, 24. But you know what we lead the world in? Self-esteem. Self-esteem. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought. The students that are scoring the best scores in the world, they don't think they're very smart. The students that are scoring down at the bottom, the United States students, they think they're really smart. They fool themselves. We spend all our time teaching people to feel good about themselves. Actually, the scripture tells us we really don't have to teach that. We really don't have to teach that. Man's problem is not thinking humbly. It's thinking too highly of themselves. And Paul is now going to go into a teaching about how the body of Christ is to function and operate. And the first statement he tells to us as a body is, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought. <coughs> I can tell you that probably addresses the number one problem in churches today, is people think more highly of themselves than they ought. <coughs> what happens? Well, that person hurt my feelings. Or that person did something I didn't think they should do. That person's not doing what I think they should be doing. Why? We're thinking more highly of ourselves than, we're, than we ought. And Paul tells us not to be prideful, but to think of ourselves with sober judgment. He's saying to, be, to think in modest terms, to be humble. Because you see, if you think of yourself in your proper place of what Christ has done for you, I've said it, you've heard me say it over and over again, man cannot come before God pridefully. There's no place for it because God has done everything for you. He's done all the work. And if you come to God in a prideful manner, <coughs> you're in trouble. But according to our faith, we must understand that salvation is a gift, not of ourselves. And in the body of Christ, there is no basis for pride or superiority. We were all aliens. We were all enemies of God. And every one of us was adopted into the family of God. And therefore, none of us should think more highly of ourselves than we ought because we all were in the same position of equal lostness. Not one of you was more deserving of salvation than the other. Not one of you was deserving of anything greater than the other. We're all in the same boat together. We were all sinking in the same boat together. But through God's mercy, the work of the Holy Spirit, we were brought into the family of God. In light of that, Paul says this in verse 4. He says, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, verse 5, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to the others. He uses the <laughs> analogy of a physical body. Of course, we can all understand that our physical bodies have many parts. Of course, he uses the same analogy in 1 Corinthians, <coughs> many parts but make up one body. And we can understand that. He says it's the same in Christ. We who are many, each of us are individuals, and we come together as individuals to form <coughs> that one body. 
Maggie's going to get me some tea. That was my backup plan if the coffee didn't work. How's that? But the coffee's working better than the bottle of water did last week. So in Christ, we who are many form one body. Each of you come into the body as individuals. But Paul is telling us that in Christ, we need to come together to form one unit, (coughs) one unit that will work together. And notice he also says that each (coughs) member does not belong to themselves. He says each member belongs to the others. Now, I don't know if you think in those terms, but when you're part of the body of Christ, you don't belong to yourself. You belong to the body of Christ. That you're not to be independent of one another. Now, that's very tough because we as Americans tend to think of ourselves as very independent individuals. Self-reliant, right? That we can take care of ourselves and we don't have to worry about anyone else because I have my rights. We focus a lot on rights. There's not a lot of rights within the, <coughs> within the church, but the members are not to be independent of one another. And one of the reasons why there's so many problems in bodies, church bodies, is because everybody's out there acting as if they're independent of one another. And the truth of the matter is, scripturally speaking, we're not isolated individuals. We're to be united together in one spirit. There's an analogy to this of marriage. What happens? Scripture tells us two are to become one. Two are to become, they're supposed to become so united as if they're no longer two individuals, but they're one. And that's the same with the body of Christ. When we come together and form (coughs) a body, we are now no longer to be isolated. So, use the example of marriage. When a husband doesn't treat his wife well, what scripture say? He's harming himself. Why? Because they're one. And the same thing is true of the body of Christ. When we don't protect and care for one another, honor one another, then guess what? Scripture teaches that we're actually hurting ourselves. And so many churches, church bodies are are dysfunctional because there's all this infighting and harming one another and thinking that they're independent of one another. The body must learn to function or to work together, not for our own benefit, but because we've been called together to serve the purpose and will of Christ. One of the sad things to me is that Jesus Christ says that the world will know you on how you love one another. They'll know you're my disciples because you love one another. And that the joke in the world is as Christians can't get along, they fight with each other all the time. And that's a tragedy because it maligns the name of Christ. We forget often that we've come together for Christ's purpose, for Christ's will. Then Paul goes on and he uses, <coughs> he speaks of specific gifts, <coughs> and he speaks of um, different gifts that are given by the grace of God. Not all of our gifts are the same. There is variety and diversity within the body of Christ. But we must remember that the gifts are not of ourselves, that the gifts have come from the Holy Spirit. And the ways in which you've been gifted are not things that you chose, but they were the will of God the will of the Holy Spirit that were given to you. And he lists out different gifts here. He lifts out, this is not an all-inclusive list. (coughs) Well, here we go again. (coughs) How come I'm always fine until I get up and start preaching? He lifts lifts out a few of the gifts here. If you were to go into 1 Corinthians and different passages in Scripture, you could find more spiritual gifts that Paul would provide for, for you, for your own. So if you're 
desiring to find out what your spiritual gifts are, I would, I would encourage you to spend some time learning about the spiritual gifts. But he lists out a few of the gifts here. He says prophesying is one who speaks forth the word of God according to his faith. If one has the gift of prophesying, he should do so according to his faith. He lists the gift of serving. He says if your gift is serving, let him serve. If your gift is teaching, to teach. If your gift is encouraging, you should encourage. If it's contributing. Thank you, Maggie. To the rescue here. Back to, um, thank you. If it's contributing to the needs of others, to let him give generously. If it is leadership, to let him govern diligently. And if it's showing mercy, to let him do so cheerfully. So each of these gifts are ones that minister to the body of Christ in different ways. Uh, I would encourage you to spend some time trying to learn what your gifts are. I believe that all believers have been given at least one gift, if not more, and I think typically more gifts than one, to serve the needs of the body and to serve Christ's purposes. And I think that you should um, give some thought to what, how has Christ gifted you? And I can tell you, your gift will not be the same as other people's gifts, probably. There may be some similarities. Um, not everybody is gifted, for example, in generosity or showing mercy. But some people here are. Some people are. Let us not forget this, that Jesus Christ is the head and we are the body. We are to be directed by Christ. The body is to obey Christ in its purposes. Many churches today function like this. They have a pastor, and the pastor serves as both the head and the body of the church. And the church congregation sits in the pews, and they're very passive. They don't do much. And the attitude tends to be, well, that's his job. Or if they have a staff of people, that's their job. We hire them to do that job, and they tend to lose sight of the fact that the body is supposed to be this cohesive unit it was interesting, I shared this before, but we were at one of these uh, conferences last year, we were walking around one of these big churches, and they literally had a pastor of puppet ministries. And you see many of these large churches, they'll have 50 or 100 people on staff. And the attitude within those churches often is, well, we've hired these people to do these jobs. They're jobs. They literally are jobs. And... <laughs> I've seen it many times, you, you have also seen it, where this, well, the pastor essentially is asked to both be the head and the body of the church, and all of the rest of us sit back, <coughs> and we really don't do anything. And I can tell you that's completely non-biblical model, but people like it. It's appealing to people because you can come and go from church with little or no responsibility. In fact, little or no responsibility whether or not you show up on Sunday morning. But it's a completely non-biblical model, and of course it's very ineffective. It might look effective in the fact that there's large numbers of people there, <coughs> and it's run professionally, but it's not. The true model of the, how the body's supposed to function is actually kind of messy, and that's okay, because it involves a lot of different people performing their, their gifts within the body. The members of the body are specifically gifted by the Holy Spirit for acts of service. Each of us has been given gifts for the purpose of serving. 
And I believe this, that each body has been uniquely gifted by the Holy Spirit for specific ministries directed by Christ by, for that body. So, for example, in saying that, is our body doesn't have the same gifts as the church down the street. The church down the street may have very legitimate message of, of, of very legitimate ministries that God has gifted that body specifically to carry out, <coughs> which we may not have. Because God directs, I believe, if we're following the Spirit, he directs the people that come in and become part of this body, and each of those people are unique. And they have unique gifts from the Spirit that have uniquely equipped our body for specific ministries. And so we don't have to make ourselves look like every church down the street. We need to be the church that God has equipped us to be. And to fulfill that, and as soon as we start trying to copy someone else and try to be somebody else that we're not gifted to be, we're going to have problems. And so it's okay not to be the same. And it's okay for somebody to not fit in here. Because if they are not gifted or directed by the Spirit to be here, then they probably should be where God is directing them to be. And that's all right. See, a lot of the mentality of churches is, well, we just want to grow, 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 and get bigger and bigger, but they don't know why they're doing it. And we want to just be what Christ wants us to be. If he wants us to be 60 people with the gifts that we have and serving the needs that we can meet, then that's who we want to be because we want to be whatever Christ wants us to be. If he wants us to be more than that or less than that, is up to him and how he gives us for the ministry that this church has been called to. <clears throat> I want to also say this to you, that if you're not serving the body, as you're a believer, if you're sitting here this morning and you're a member of this body and you're not serving this body, and I'm talking about everybody that's a believer right down to the child that's accepted Christ, if you're not serving the body using your gifts, you're, you're the weak link or the missing link that we need. Because if God has you here, and you're just sitting and you're doing nothing, then you're failing to do whatever Christ has called you to do. I don't know what that is. I'm not, I'm not, I won't pick out Shelly, for example, and say, Shelly, you're not doing your job. See, because I don't know. I don't know as I go up and down the pews, I don't know what each of your gifts are. I don't know what the Holy Spirit has directed you to do. <clears throat> but if you're not doing anything, then we're weaker as a body of believers because of that. And that, unfortunately, is the American model, by and large, as I've insinuated, that oftentimes people sit back and do nothing because they think it's not my job. No, we don't have jobs. We have gifts from the Holy Spirit and we have functions and purposes. And if we're not using them, then we're weakening the body and we're weakening the ministry that Christ has for us. Your gifts will enable you to see and meet the needs of others. I want to say that again. Your gifts will enable you to see and meet the needs of others. Your gifts are not the same as someone else's gifts. Oftentimes, people have come to me and said, I see so-and-so, this should be done. Now, they get frustrated with me because often I, my response to you when you come to me and say that is, maybe you should go take care of that. Because the pattern is in most churches is to go to the pastor and tell, point out the needs and the expectation is the pastor's going to go do it then because he better hop to it, right? But 
my understanding of Scripture is this, is that if you see the need, it's probably because the Spirit pointed it out to you and it relates to your gift. And guess what? Not everybody needs to be meeting the same need. Because if you, you go meet that need, it's taken care of. If it's bigger than that and you need help, come and ask the body for help. But if you take care of it, it got taken care of. You say this person needs help or they need encouraging and they need mercy or maybe they need some financial help. It's okay to just go do that. You don't need to come to the leadership of the church and ask for permission. You got the permission from Jesus Christ to go take care of it. Now, if you want additional help or prayer, that's perfectly fine. But I think that the majority of the exercising of the gifts within the body of Christ, I'll never know about them, and I don't need to. I don't need to. It's completely fine if it happens without my knowledge, because that's the, health, the way the healthy body is supposed to function. We're supposed to be relating and serving one another and serving the needs around us, and we don't need to get up on pedestals and talk about it. I also want to say this to you, is that if you're not using your gifts, Christ will hold you accountable. You know, as believers, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that each of us will be judged. Each of us will be judged according to the deeds done in the body, it says, whether good or bad. And when Christ gives you a gift, he doesn't intend for it to be wasted. He intends for you to use it. And you won't answer to me whether you use that gift or not, but you will answer to Christ. And Christ will say, well, I gave you the gift of generosity. Why didn't you exercise it? I gave you the gift of mercy. Why weren't you merciful? Well, I was busy. Yeah, but I gave you that gift to use. And each of us is going to answer for that. Each of us individually will stand before Christ and we will be held accountable. Do not resist the, temp the prompting of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit prompts you, then do it. Do it. I can think of many times when I've been prompted by the Holy Spirit, and, and you know what we do? We second-guess ourselves. Oh, I, I shouldn't get involved. I, they probably don't want me to do that. You know, if the Holy Spirit prompts you, do it. Many times then, when I have followed that, I think, man, am I glad I did that. Man, am I glad. I'm going to tell you a story from my, just related to that. <clears throat> I played football back in my younger days. And my coach that we play, I played football for, he used to have a, a saying that he would say, play your position. Play your position. You see, there's 11 guys, if I remember right, there's 11 guys on the team that are out on the field at any one time. And I remember at an early age playing football, and the guy next to me was supposed to block that guy. Well, he didn't block him. He messed up, and so I had to get over there and block the guy he messed up on. In the meantime, the guy I was supposed to be blocking went right on through the line. You see, and the coach says, play your position. See, I don't need you playing someone else's position. I need you to do what you're supposed to do because you're a guy on the team, and you just take care of what you've got to take care of. Whatever else happens, that's not your responsibility. Focus on your position because if you don't do your position, we're going to fail. <clears throat> and he needed 11 people that were playing their positions all at the same time, and that's the same in the body of Christ. We each need to play our position, whatever that might be. <clears throat> and others don't need to know about the spiritual service of the body. I already said that. 
I also want to make this point about spiritual gifts. If you sit back and you say, well, I don't have that spiritual gift of mercy, and I can tell you I don't. I don't have the spiritual gift of mercy. Now, a guy like Greg Mathias, he had the gift of mercy. He was so empathetic towards people. It was always just amazing to me how merciful and empathetic he was and how he would feel the feelings that people had. And I used to kind of scoff at him a bit about that. And then I came to the realization, you guess, guess what? Just because you don't have the gift of mercy doesn't preclude you from being merciful. If you don't have the gift of generosity, which many people don't, doesn't preclude you from giving of your first fruits, of giving to the work of the Lord. We're all called to be kind. We're all called to be faithful, even if it's not our spiritual gift. And so I want to say that to us, to not think that somehow I'm excluded from things because it's not my spiritual gift. <laughs> and I want to make one last point. If we turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, here another well-known passage on the gifts. One of the things that Paul was dealing with in the Corinthian church is people came to the false belief that some gifts were more important than others. And that's because they were looking at things from human standards. But Paul argues against that vehemently in 1 Corinthians. I just want to read a passage starting in verse 22. He's using, again, the example of the body. He says in the verse before that, he says, The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. Of course, none of the parts of the body can act as if they don't need the other parts. <coughs> he goes on in verse 22, he says, On the contrary, these parts of the body that seem to be weaker and indispensable, <coughs> and the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable, we treat with special modesty. Well, our presentable parts need no special treatment, but God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body but that its parts should be equal concern to each other verse 26 if one part suffers every part suffers if one part is honored every part rejoices with it and I just want I would never want us to struggle with what the Corinthians were struggling with and thinking that one person or one part is more important than another the one who's gift of service, for example, is often done back behind the scenes. Nobody sees that happening. The person that comes and maybe cleans or fixes the church or does things here, and you don't see that because it's happening on a Wednesday morning, you know. That's no less important than the person who gets up and teaches. They all serve equal importance. I just want to share a story with you. It'll kind of help maybe put it in context. I'll just read this story. This it's written by a cab driver. Twenty years ago, I drove a cab for a living. It was a cowboy's life, a life for someone who wanted to be, wanted no boss. What I didn't realize that it was also a ministry. But because I drove the night shift, my cab became a moving confessional. Passengers climbed in the seat and sat behind me in total anonymity and told me about their lives. I encountered people whose lives amazed me, emboldened me, and made me laugh and weep. But none touched me more than the woman I picked up one late 
up late one August night. I was responding to a call from the small, to a small brick fourplex in a quiet part of town. I assumed I was being sent to pick up some partiers or someone who had just had a fight with a lover or a worker heading to an early shift at some factory for the industrial part of town. When I arrived at 2.30 a.m., the building was dark except for a single light in the ground floor window. Under these circumstances, many drivers would just honk once or twice and wait a minute and then drive away. But I'd seen too many impoverished people who depended on taxis for their many only means of transportation. Unless a situation smelled of danger, I always went to the door. This passenger might be someone who needs assistance, I reasoned to myself. So I walked to the door and knocked. Just a minute, answered a frail elderly voice. I could hear something being dragged across the floor in a long pause, and then the door opened. A small woman in her 80s stood before me. She was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned onto it like someone right out of the 1940s movie. By her side was a small nylon suitcase. The apartment looked as if no one had lived in it for years. All the furniture was covered with sheets. There were no clocks on the walls, no knickknacks or utensils on the counters. In the corner was a cardboard box filled with photos and glassware. Would you carry my bag out to the car, she said. I took the suitcase to the cab and then returned to assist the woman. She took my arm and walked very slowly towards the curb. She kept thanking me for my kindness. It's nothing, I told her. I just try to treat my passengers the way I'd want my mother treated. Oh, you're such a good boy, she said. When we got to the cab, she gave me an address and said, could you drive through the downtown? This actually took place in Minneapolis. That's not the shortest way, I answered quickly. Oh, I don't mind, she said. I'm in no hurry. I'm on my way to, the ho to a hospice. I looked in the rearview mirror. Her eyes were glistening. I don't have any family left, she continued. The doctor says I don't have very long. I like, quietly reached over and shut off the meter. What route would you like to take, I asked. For the next two hours, we drove through the city. She showed me the building where she had worked once as an elevator operator. We drove through the neighborhood where she and her husband had lived when they were newlyweds. She had me pull up in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she had gone dancing as a girl. Sometimes she'd ask me to slow in front of a particular building, a corner, and we would sit in the darkness saying nothing. As the first hint of the sun was creasing the horizon, she suddenly said, I'm tired, let's go now. We drove in silence to the address she had given me. It was a low building, like a small convalescent home with a driveway that passed under a portico. Two orderlies came out to the cab as soon as we pulled up. They were intent, watching her every move. They must have been expecting her. I opened the trunk and took a small suitcase to the door. The woman was already seated in a wheelchair. How much do I owe you? She asked, reaching into her purse. Nothing, I said. You have to make a living, she answered. There are other passengers, I responded. Almost without thinking, I bent and gave her a hug. She held on to me tightly. You gave an old woman a little moment of joy, she said. Thank you. I squeezed her hand and then walked into the dim morning light. Behind me, a door shut. It was the sound of the closing of a life. I picked up many more passengers that sh I didn't pick up any more passengers that shift. I drove aimlessly, lost in thought. For the rest of that day, I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten an angry driver, or one who was impatient to end his shift? What if I had refused to take 
the run or had honked once and then driven away. On quick review, I don't think I've done anything more important in my life. We're conditioned to think that our lives revolve around many great moments, but great moments often catch us unaware, beautifully wrapped in what others consider a small one. And I want to say, I think, I really believe this, that the greatest work done in the body of Christ are things that no one else will ever know about. They'll never see. And I think when we stand before Christ on that judgment day, I think that we're going to be shocked when Christ says to some people that we'll never, we'll, we won't believe it, he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Well done. And there are going to be others that we're going to think, wow, I wonder what honor God has bestowed for this person because they were, they were important. And you know what Paul says? Their works are going to get burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. You see, God's ways are not man's ways. God's thoughts are higher than man's thoughts. And you might not think you're that important, but the work that God has for you is of all importance. Unless we forget, and we think of ourselves too highly than we ought, and we don't think of others as highly as we should, we need to submit ourselves to one another as a body. We need to love one another, and we need to come together as a unit to work together for the purpose of glorifying Christ for his will and his purposes, not our honor and not our glory. And so let's prepare our hearts for communion. <clears throat> I'd like us to open our hymnals to number five.